Today's episode is brought to you by www.thestardraft.com. Hollywood award season is right around the corner, but let's be real, it never really left. Anyway, that means it's time to play everyone's favorite fantasy game. And no, I'm not talking about fantasy foosball. Draft a team of celebrities, and when they score wins and nominations through award season, your team earns points. At the end of Oscar night, the top score across all leagues will take home a cash prize. So create a league with friends or join a league to make new ones. Drafts are held every night. Play today at www.thestardraft.com. Draft celebrities, slay your friends, win money. We share the, the same love, the, the love of film. And now what I'm about to say probably will stir up a lot of conversation around over the country. You commie, homo-loving sons of guns. It's not about you. It's about these characters. They are two of the finest gay Americans, two wonderful men. And I am greatly honored and tremendously moved. Don't let anybody tell you this isn't a terrific thrill. It would be a lie if I told you I didn't know what to say because I've been working on this speech for about 25 years. Well, it's my privilege. Thank you. And welcome back to this month's episode of Academy Queens. You're going to learn today, son. I am Joey Gentilly. And I'm the patron saint of mediocrities. I'm Brandon Stanwick. And this is Academy Queens, your LGBT guide through the Academy Awards per decade per category in our farewell season. And that has brought us to the men of 1984. Brandon, how the hell are you? What do you think about this year? And uh, what are you expecting in this conversation today? Oh, I'm doing pretty well. Um, it's quite warm here in Texas on Christmas Eve, the day that we're recording. It's unseasonably warm, even for Texas, because the earth is dying. But we're here to talk about happy things like um, Cambodian genocide and murder on uh, military bases and things of that nature. So things are looking up. Uh, this year is really interesting. Um, you know, this is going to be our last time covering the men on the regular episode, and we knew we uh, we couldn't not do the Amadeus men. So that's why we chose this year, of course. And it's a it's an interesting year with some notable nominees. So looking forward to it. Very much so. And of course, um, our uh, Twitter profile header that you chose, I think it was even before we had decided on this year, maybe it was right after, I'm not sure, are the boys of Amadeus. And we, I recently asked, which was a very neck and neck poll that people really got into on our account, is that if we ever remade Amadeus with you and I, who would be who? And literally by one vote, I became Mozart, and you became Salieri. I'm surprised by how close it was, because for some reason I just don't see myself as a Mozart, mm -hmm. and I was surprised that so many people did. So curious about uh about that. I it was so funny too because the comments that we had gotten on it were like, you know, Brandon is the subtle shade but joey is the loud shade and then <laughs> our good friend ryan mcquade texted us or texted me and was like 
yeah, I could see Brandon as Salieri. And I was like, yeah, I mean, I could see either one. He goes, but the thing is, is that you have the facial shadiness. Like when your face, when you when you hate something or or you're trying to be shady, it shows on your face. And that's more Salieri. So he's like, I don't know who to choose. Mm. <laughs> so I was like, yeah, that's kind of interesting. But um, but yeah, it was kind of it was kind of funny because I, I revisited Amadeus. I'd seen it before, but this was the first time I had watched the director's cut, which is fascinating. And I remember going into it before I had asked that question. I was like, I saw myself as Salieri, but then at the end of the director's cut, I was like, okay, I could totally see myself as Amadeus as well. Yeah. So I'm I'm fine with either one of them. But yeah, I it, you know it's a very interesting year. It was interesting to return to a farm lady film with John Malkovich. Um, some first time watches here for me. I don't know about you, um, but yeah, I'm just gonna get this out of the way right now. I know The Killing Fields is a very serious movie, but I, I the heart wants what the heart wants, and let me tell you, Sam Watterson in that movie, I would eat that man's ass so quick. Yeah, he uh, Sam Waterston's one of those one of those gentlemen from this era who does not quite get the attention I think he deserves for how attractive he was. He's not like a conventionally attractive type, you know, that you would think of uh, like from this era, you know, like a like a Richard Gere or a you know Tom Selleck or whatever. But he has a very unique look that I I find myself drawn to as well. Yep. Yep. Well. Who do you think I'm choosing? Um, see, I've been going back and forth in supporting. Um, I think I'm going to go with Adolf Caesar uh, just because. For some reason, I thought you might go with Pat Morita. I don't know why. There was just a weird inkling that I felt. But I'm going to go with Caesar. And then I'm going to go out on a, on a limb here in lead. And I think you're going to tie Tom Hulse and Albert Finney. Wow. Interesting. Um, This would be, if I give Albert Finney a win here, he would become the only actor we have talked about so far where I give him a win for every nomination. Hmm. Because despite how terrible Tom Jones is, I do give it two Oscar wins for acting Albert Finney and Diane Salento from Whore Meadows. And then I do give it to him for Murder on the Orient Express. I tie him the year before, 19, so 1983, with both the dresser men. And then I would give it to him for Aaron Brockovich. So do I give Albert Finney a perfect record? We shall find out. All right. Supporting. I don't know with you. I genuinely don't know. Because if record is still set with how we do this show, you're not giving it to Nor because that is category fraud. But you may surprise me. So if I'm going off of the four men who are left... I could see you giving this to John Malkovich, to be honest, now that I really think about this. I don't know. You might say Ralph Richardson totally take me by surprise, but I I would say as of now, Malkovich. For lead, 
See, I want to say F. Murray Abraham, but I could weirdly also see you giving it to Sam Watterson here. So I'm just going to be nuts. I'm going to say Malkovich and Watterson. Most likely wrong per usual when it comes to your guesses, but I will just say that. All right. Well, shall we kick things off then? Let's do it. All right. Well, your nominees for Best Supporting Actor in 1984 were... Adolf Caesar in A Soldier's Story. John Malkovich in Places in the Heart. Moriyuki Pat Morita in The Karate Kid. Hang S. Noor in The Killing Fields. Richardson in Greystoke, The Legend of Tarzan, Lord of the Apes. Okay, starting off with our winner for the year, we have Hang S. Noor winning for The Killing Fields. This is his first and only win and nomination. Going into this, uh, he wins the Golden Globe for supporting, he wins a BAFTA for newcomer, and he wins the BAFTA in their lead category. In The Killing Field, he plays Dith Pran, a local journalist in Cambodia covering the Civil War and Khmer Rouge uprising alongside a journalist from the New York Times. So how do you feel about uh, Hang S. Noor in The Killing Fields? So I want to point out my first initial reaction to Hang S. Noor um, is paying my respect to him. Um, not only as an actor, but as a person who survived this horrible tragedy that happened in Cambodia. His own wife was murdered by the regime while giving birth to their child. Um, and his story is super touching, but also very tragic on how he got there and then his ending, because despite surviving all of that, he's murdered over jewelry in 1996 um and i actually recently read something about him that really kind of broke my heart was that when after he was murdered his niece went to his apartment and found his oscar on his bedside that had pretty much all of the gold rubbed off of it because he constantly held it he was so proud of that oscar um so I think it's at the Academy Museum now, so if it is there, I would, I'm would i going to be very um, moved by seeing it, because knowing that story now, uh, when I'm there in two months. So, uh, yeah, I, uh, you know, salute to him and his actual story. Now, um, getting to the film, I had seen the film a while ago, um, not that long ago, probably like five or six years ago, and I remembered how I felt the movie had moved um, for being over two hours long. I was like, wow, the, the editing in this is pretty solid. Um, but I, I didn't really remember anything about the movie until a revisit. And I knew it was about, you know, these tragic events. But for some reason on the second watch, 
the movie didn't move as fast. I felt like it actually dragged a lot. And I, I, I found that fascinating as to why it didn't work for me pacing this time. Um, regarding Nor, um, you know, this was an, a, a man who wasn't an actor who um, essentially, I don't want to say it's like a biopic for him, but he already, it, it, it's a biography in the sense of he he lived through it. So he's not really acting, if that makes sense. And at that point, he had become the second actor to win an award or the second person to win an acting award who wasn't an actor, the first being Harold Russell back in 1947 for the best years of our lives when the Academy actually gave him two wins um, that year. So, you know, there there's this narrative more of this win and about the win that it is the actual performance, because I don't really think there's a performance here. Um, you know, I've said before, there are times when you can win an Oscar for acting and the acting is so good, you don't realize there's acting. For me here, I see the acting despite him living through that. I hope that makes sense. Um, there's also the narrative at this point that I've been thinking about where I was like, okay, that's right. You know, as of right now with, you know, Harold Russell and now uh, Hang Ass Noor, there's really this idea that the Academy loves to reward non-actors. And then I was thinking more about that. I'm like, if that had been the case, then Mikhail Baryshnikov and Leslie Brown uh, would have been instant winners for the Academy since um, they're not actors, as would have been Dexter Gordon two years after th this ceremony for Round Midnight. Um, so that logic doesn't really add up even though it's an interesting way to think about it because all the other non-actors there didn't actually win. So I am more curious, is that is, it, is this win about the performance or is this politics when it comes to the win? Because I was talking with a few other cinephiles actually as of last night, and a lot of them, while liking the performance, definitely felt that this win was more about his story. So I'm interested to hear your thoughts on that. Um, but yeah, I would say that this is a non-actor who you can tell is not an actor winning an Academy Award. I think it's a little bit of everything with this one. Um, he is definitely bringing something to this performance that someone who does who did not have his life experience would not have been able to do. There's a certain effortlessness to it. That's not to say he's not doing anything, but he has so much lived experience. It is behind his eyes. It is in the wrinkles of his skin that it just comes across on camera. And he's able to bring this character to life simply, I say simply, but it's really quite complex, by just having all this trauma and pain that he's somehow able to translate. And I think there is, you know, there's always a story with the Oscars. Uh, it's, you know, it's never really about just the performance ever. And yeah, he does have quite a unique, compelling story that, you know, I'm sure people were talking about, and I'm sure it was in the trades, and it was something that could not be fully separated from discussions of just the performance itself. So I think it is a little bit of everything, but, uh, it's it's also a pretty stellar performance. Uh, it doesn't always look like he's acting. 
which I don't think is a negative here. There is a naturalism to his performance style that I really dig. And when he does have his section in the second half of the film where it really is just him, I find him so compelling and so believable for all of those reasons because I don't feel like I'm watching someone put on a show. Uh, I'm watching someone channel his own past through the vessel of another person's life through a script and on camera. I find that sequence when he's you know escaping the prison, the concentration camp, whatever, I don't remember the technical term for it, but when he's escaped and he's fleeing through, you know, the marshes and there's a moment where he's just sort of walking and he trips and like falls into like a valley full of dead bodies and skeletons. And I audibly gasped because it took me so by surprise because uh, this was my first time watching this film. The Killing Fields had been one of those movies that was always sort of on my radar. I just never really got around to it. You know, it's a pretty heavy subject matter. And, you know, I seldom find myself in the mood for a film of this nature. And so this was finally my uh, my reason to watch it. And I found him just so spellbinding uh, the entire time. Yeah, I, so I think he, he is giving a remarkable performance um, that I think is worthy of awards recognition, but um, not denying that he also just has a really great personal story that just fed into the whole thing. So that's how things came to be for him. I always find it like not never obviously condoning the use of yellow face or blackface, but I always find it interesting too how Linda Hunt, who wins for playing in yellow face man in essentially a role that can be very similar to what Nora wins for is she's the one to give it off the next year. And I wonder if that was ever like a discussion at that time. You know what I mean? Yeah. I'm sure, I mean, I'm sure it was talked about. I'm not sure how publicly or how widely it was discussed, but I'm sure that was something that, you know, crossed people's minds. Absolutely. And, like, in general, this lineup here, we have three men of color, and that doesn't even happen very often now. So it's very interesting and surprisingly welcome to see this so, I don't want to say so early in the Academy, because we're at, we're past 50 years here, but I would say back in 1984, you know what I mean? Yeah, it's like one of those moments, like a lead actress in 72, where it seemed like it was a, a transition period, like, oh, this is how it's going to look from now on, but yeah. then it didn't. <laughs> yeah. Um. One of the things, I, I don't think you mentioned it, so I don't hope you don't feel like I'm stepping on your toes, is one of the things is that BAFTA gives him a lead win here. Yeah. So, I mean, with I mean, what are your thoughts on that? I think it makes sense. Um, you know, this is sort of considered one of the more infamous, I suppose, cases of category fraud. And um, this is my first time watching it, so um, I went into it knowing that this was something that people talked about a lot, his, uh, his category placement. And for the first half or so of the movie, I was kind of on the fence. I was like, is he really co-leading or is it really just like a, a meaty supporting part? And then the second half of the movie exactly. takes a turn. Yeah. That, and that second half completely changes the game where he is, without a doubt, a lead. And yeah, this is definitely a case of category fraud. Yeah, and it's unfortunate because I truly wonder, see, that's the thing, and we'll talk about that in lead, but I wonder if he had gone lead that year, if he could have ousted one of the, um, well, if he could have ousted Abraham. 
could be. I wonder if we would have, well, I just was just speculating that assuming that Finney or Bridges didn't get it, it, if you'd have two, you only have three movies in lead, you know, you'd have two men from Amadeus, Amadeus, two men from Killing Fields, and whoever the fifth one ended up being. That could have been an interesting lineup just on those grounds. Yeah. Yeah. And we'll get it, we'll get it, we'll get to lead when we talk about it. Um, but, you know, this was also to the last year that we've had two actor performances from the same movie. Mm-hmm. So if that would have happened, that would have been a hell of an Oscar stat. Yeah. So. So next we have Adolf Caesar nominated for A Soldier's Story. This is his first and only nomination. Going into this, he wins with the Los Angeles Film Critics and with the Image Awards, and he's nominated at the Globes. In A Soldier's Story, Adolf Caesar plays Sergeant Waters, a murdered commanding officer whose death sparks an investigation. So how do you feel about Caesar in A Soldier's Story? So this was a first watch for me, and I was very pleasantly surprised with this movie. I was very um, into the drama of it all. I was very much into the acting. Um, I mean, Denzel Washington has always been a man who is fine as fuck. But young Denzel, talk about someone else who needs their ass ate. Um, In this is just glorious. And I, you know, Adolf Caesar was an unknown person up until this film. I mean, I only knew him from The Color Purple, which was the following year. Um, and then, of course, you have my Oscar winner for supporting actor for Ragtime in here, Howardy e. Rollins. And so it was nice to see him in this. And I was just like, this movie is wonderful. And of course, you have Patti LaBelle in the beginning. Um, and I genuinely really like this movie. I also think Norman Jewison always understands the assignment. Um, you know, he did Fiddler and he isn't Jewish. And then he did this movie and he isn't black. And he did um, uh, uh, Agnes of God and he isn't religious. And I feel like it's like he's like the perfect example of you don't always have to have X person to do X story. And like he does this really really well the directing in this is fantastic um so kudos to jewison on that um i was so enthralled by what was happening here um that when it's revealed who the killer is i was like oh shit okay because you're getting this story of this murdered officer in the military who is caesar right in the beginning so i'm like what the hell like i was not expecting that and then the movie's told through flashback stories as well as present day like murder mystery and i'm like i am here for this um so i I, you know i think caesar is fascinating you know he's got that like 12 pack a day smoker voice um that could sound like nails on a chalkboard to some but i just weirdly find it really enthralling um and this is a role that really could have just been a caricature. And Caesar brings such a unique realness to him that I'm going to say this is the, the example, the opposite of how I felt about Nord, where it's like you can't even tell he's really acting. Like, I would think this is that person and it works here for him. Um, 
I liked it. I, I think this is a really good first and well sole nomination for Caesar because I think he died shortly uh, after in the late 80s. So um, kudos to him and kudos to the Academy for, for you know, giving an unknown this nomination or having a few unknowns in this nomination lineup. So uh, what about you? I quite like this one, too. This was also a first time watch for me. And um, I was also struck by how versatile our great uncle Norm is at telling all these different types of stories. I, I honestly don't know who the modern day Norman Jewison is. That, that's, that's a thinker right there. But um, Caesar, I think, is magnificent here. Uh, I did not know the whole story of a soldier story going in. I knew it was about a murder. And that's pretty much it, just in general. I knew it was about a murder. And so uh, one day I go to put this film in and, uh, you know, he comes in and he's murdered in like the first five minutes. And I was like, there is no way he was nominated for those first five minutes. And then, you know, like you said, it jumps back and it's like flashbacks and you get more of him as the film goes on. And he is so enthralling in this performance. And he gives you, as the viewer, so many reasons for why any member of this company of men might want him murdered or to see him murdered. You know, he's a he's a guy who has his own struggles, of course, and he's dealing with a lot of odds. And, you know, he's just trying to create the best company of men that he can in the way that he thinks he needs to. And sometimes that methodology doesn't work for everyone and it causes uh, tension and troubles and resentment and it kind of backfires. And so there's a lot going on in this character and his motivations that lead other people to uh, develop their own motivations, possibly, for wanting him to die. And uh, I really dug it. I thought this was a very interesting character study um, set in a very interesting time period for this particular um, group of men. And I was actually quite taken aback by it. And it's a stellar cast, like you said. Uh, you know, Caesar's great. And then you've got our our good old buddy from Ragtime and David Allen Greer's in this and Denzel Washington. Great cast. And um, yeah, I, I was surprised that I had never seen this one before when it was over. And Caesar's a big reason for that. I feel like uh, he deserves uh, some more shout outs. Yeah, apparently there's a, a remake of this happening, which I think this movie really deserves a remake just so it can be seen by a new audience. I mean, this movie needs to be seen anyway because I think it's very important. Um, you know, it tells a story of internal racism in one race. And that was, I was watching an interview. That's a big thing why Norman wanted to do this film because that isn't spoken about very often. Um, and, you know, I think that's just fascinating in general uh, for him to want to take on this to tell that. Um, but yeah, you know, this is also a, uh, based off of a play um, by a what is called the Negro Ensemble Company. And, um, you know, that includes Debbie Allen, Angela Bassett, Adolf Caesar, Keith David, uh, Clavon Little, Delroy Lindo, um, Esipoth Americason, et cetera, et cetera. So a very well-known company that originally did this as um, a soldier's tale, I believe it's called maybe I have to look into that. I know it's like, it's not called a soldier's story. I think it's called a, or a soldier's play. That's it. And um, 
you know, this is being remade as a TV film. And I'm like, no, like this should be theatrical, especially for the fact of this film at that time, because Rollins was really the biggest name in this movie at that time because he was fresh off of his Oscar nomination. But think of all the untapped black talent out there that could be seen in this production if it is theatrical. They deserve that. And like, it really should not be a TV remake. I'm okay with it being TV. I'm not, you know, a, a theatrical purist, I guess. I guess I'm a little bit of an outlier when it comes to that sort of thing. But I definitely think this is a story that should live on, um, however that ends up being. But um, I'm very curious how they'll go about casting the Waters part, because um, the idea of colorism crossed my mind while watching this movie. And I wonder how much that plays into the dynamics among these characters and how Waters maybe came to get where he is, um, you know, being a lighter skinned black man in this time period. I, I want to look up, see if anyone's ever written about that, because the idea just kind of crossed my mind while watching it. Also, uh, Caesar is a very short person. That mm. idea also crossed my mind because he's this little guy in this position of power among these other men who kind of tower over him and are mostly more muscular than him. And so the power dynamics of this group is very fascinating. And the way uh, Adolf Caesar finds, um, the ways he plays off of that dynamic to maintain his power. And sometimes it's kind of taken out from under him. Like uh, sometimes like a higher up officer will sort of strike him down in front of his men. And there's a bit of, I think, humiliation that he has to try to mask. So there's a lot of power struggles going on that I find very fascinating as a viewer. So I'm curious how it would play today, how it would how it would be casted and directed today. Yeah, and this also got a Best Picture nomination. So I really wonder like where this would have winded or where this would have wound up that year um, in the rankings. Yeah, I don't know. I hope a lot of people watched it. Yeah, like like you know enough people to get it higher up than like fourth or fifth yeah i mean how much of a priority it was for your average academy goer back then honestly looking at that lineup with the killing field passage of india place in the heart i kind of really hope it came in at least second or third mm. so yeah well next we have john malkovich nominated for places in the heart this is his first of two nominations uh going into this i guess you could say he was a maybe a bit of a threat. He has the National Board of Review and the National Society of Film Critics locked up, and he's uh, nominated with the LA Film Critics and the New York Film Critics. In Places in the Heart, John Malkovich plays Mr. Will, a blind border and veteran living on Sally Field's property. So how do we feel about John Malkovich and Places in the Heart? So obviously we talked about Places in the Heart in 1984 with the women, and I find Places in the Heart it's supporting characters more fascinating. Like Lindsay Krauss is my supporting actress winner. Um, I am just astounded with John Malkovich here. I think he's so good in this role. Um, and it, I, I don't know if this is the correct term that I want for this, but I feel like his character is, his character here is almost set up as like a red herring in a way that like you don't know how to react to him. Uh, when you first see this movie, like, is he a good guy? Does he not just give a shit? Should we trust him? 
and he ends up being the most like trustworthy person in this film um especially for the time that it's set in and the 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 the, the content of the film you know malkovich is really really good here um malkovich is good i think in most things in general and um you know he is my winner a decade later i think he said decade later in 94 no in 93 yeah he, he's my winner in in the line of fire that year so um you know i give him a win down the line at some point um but this really surprises me every time that i watch this not like i'm watching places in the heart on loop but you know since we've done the show this is the second time i've watched it and it it is genuinely a, a role that i feel needed the right actor you know malkovich was also really good in the killing fields um you know i, I find him fascinating in that movie he's fascinating here so all in all he just had a really good 1984 and i'm living for it yeah, John Malkovich was really making a name for himself here in this time period. I mean, I think he had already been a thing on the stage for a while. Um, and, you know, 1984, he made sure that the movie theater going audience really knew who he was. I did not know he was in The Killing Fields until I was watching it. And he just kind of popped up. And I was like, damn, Malkovich is really killing it in 1984. And I thought he was really good in that film, too. Um, you know, if they had gone with uh, Nor in lead... I would not have minded uh, Malkovich being campaigned for there. I know you couldn't be double nominated, I guess, for Places in the Heart and Killing Fields, but whatever. In a hypothetical scenario, fine. Um, I think he's pretty decent in Places in the Heart. I'm not a big fan of Places in the Heart. It's just, it's not a movie for me. It kind of, you know, grinds my gears a little bit just because I'm a bitch, I guess. Uh, but I think he is doing uh, pretty well here. There's times, I don't know what, if this isn't really a compliment or a diss, but there's times where I'm watching his performance in here, and I feel like he's he is inventing Jeremy Strong as I'm watching it, because these are the types of performances that I feel like Jeremy Strong is always going for, and I like Jeremy Strong. It's just a weird connection that I make uh, while watching this, so I can see why critics might have been the ones really going for him, because like I said, he was already a thing. Um, in the theater world, and I'd imagine that a lot of these New York, particularly New York critics, would probably be familiar with him in that sphere. And so maybe there was, you know, some anticipation uh, going into uh, his performances here in Killing Field and Places in the Heart. But I think he's giving a strong performance here. I, I do like the supporting cast a little more than I do Sally Field. Of course, I wasn't super high up on Sally Field. I think she ranks like third for me in this lineup of you know farm ladies yeah i think lindsey krauss and john malkovich are definitely the uh the shining stars of places in the heart they make the film more interesting for me and uh yeah that's about all i suppose well i have lost your guess again <laughs> but you never know i guess you could really end up just having to put in there at first by default because the others are just so meh to you so who knows yeah could be. That's happened before. I mean, I mean, speaking of 1984, the lead actress lineup, I have very, very meh feelings about that. So could be. I actually just talked about that. So here's a little um, preview, I guess, for people listening. And even you, I don't think, well, you see our DMs, so you might know. I don't know. Um, but I was just a guest yesterday on the Lone Acting Nominations podcast um, for 
Catherine Burns for the last or for for last summer. And um, Gordon, the host, and I had a discussion about because uh, I'd asked him, I was like, you know, out of the episodes you've done so far, who is your favorite and then least favorite, you know, lone acting nom? And he's his one least favorite was like just because that whole, you know, list is bad. And I'm like, yeah, that's how I was with 1986 with supporting actress. Like I was like, I just give it to Tess Harper because whoever says Tess Harper and I hate that whole lineup. And so like we got into that whole thing so i'd be very interested to know if that truly is for you here about this lineup in general yeah i mean i like sissy spacek in the river who i ended up just going with for my mm -hmm. winner in ladies of 84 just because i don't really care for sally field and places in the heart i think jessica lang is doing well but i reward her elsewhere uh i need to maybe revisit passage to india at some point in my life so i like judy davis but then again that movie i'm not crazy about and then Who's the fifth one? Redgrave and the Bostonians. Oh, that's another one I probably need to revisit at some point because I just found that movie just boring. But um, maybe, I don't know, maybe a rewatch will change things. But as of right now, I'm just like, eh, give it to Sissy just because. Yeah, we all need more Sissy Spacek in our lives anyway, so. Yeah. Well, next we have Pat Morita nominated for The Karate Kid. This is his first and only nomination. And going into this, his only precursor is with The Globes. Uh, he was nominated, but of course did not win there. In The Karate Kid, Pat Morita plays Mr. Miyagi, a martial arts master who takes a troubled teen under his wing. So how do you feel about Pat Morita in The Karate Kid? So I love the pop culture zeitgeist. I've referenced this before many times on this show that some actors have and what their character means to American culture, to um, international culture. Pat Morita as Mr. Miyagi is one of the most internationally cultured figures of the 80s. Like, period. People love The Karate Kid. I mean, The Karate Kid is so iconic. There is a spinoff series in present day 2021 called Cobra Kai that is an Emmy-nominated show. How many years has this been? It's been almost 40 years. Um, you know, it's fascinating. I also think that a role like this becomes too iconic for the actor to where it hurts the actor. And that happened with Pat was it, it completely typecasted him. Also, too, he's a Japanese man that Hollywood, as we know, Unless you're a white man, you really don't have many options, period. And especially at that time, if you look at Pat's filmography, what do you see? You see characters like Mr. Wong in Laverne and Shirley. You see a character named Ah Fong in Slapstick of Another Kind. Then you get to The Karate Kid and you have Mr. Miyagi. Of course, you know, he was Arnold in Happy Days, but then, you know, Yip Tuck in The Vegas Strip Warrior, Tommy Tanaka in Amos. I mean, it, it, it's, it becomes an, a parody, and that's kind of really shitty. No, that is really shitty. So while, you know, he's amazing as uh, Mr. Miyagi, and he's iconic, wax on, wax off. Find me a more quoted, uh, a more quoted quote of a film of that decade. Maybe he's top five. It also, I feel like, hurt him, and that sucks because he's so talented. Um, you know, 
his very his very last film was a film called Rice Girl. I mean, it 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 really just sucks that he couldn't expand more, and that's not the fault of him. But the man is so talented. I mean, he he reprises Miyagi in three sequels. Um, and you know, it it's just it's it's a fascinating role because. Mr. Miyagi really starts off as someone you can't root for, in my opinion. He comes off very hard-headed. But what sells me is that drunk scene he's got where we learn about his wife and how he opens up. He becomes the uncle you've never had. He becomes the father you've always wanted. He becomes the teacher that you wish you could have experienced. Mr. Miyagi is a full spectrum of emotion and... It's like coming home to an old friend every time you revisit it. And he's the only one in this lineup who I feel like has, like, even though he didn't win, he's the most recognizable name and role in this lineup. And that's a time, that's a testament to time. That's a testament to his performance and the film itself. Bravo for the Academy for nominating this, because this doesn't feel like an Academy nominated film nor role. Um, I love this one. I knew what, you know, Wax On, Wax Off was for years before I had even seen The Karate Kid. And that's just one of those uh, movie moments that has really just, you know, ingrained itself in people's minds, you know, especially, you know, people of that generation and their young kids, you know, because, of course, this was just before my time. But I, you know, grew up knowing what that was. And um, this is a performance that I for a long time, really until recently, frequently frequently would mis- misremember that it was a nominated performance. I feel like there's been half a dozen times in my life where I've been looking things up and been like, oh, Pat Morita was nominated for The Karate Kid? Oh, that's cool. I've had that exact thought like six or seven times in my life as if I'm learning it for the first time because I just keep forgetting it. And uh, re-watching it for this, I think he's really great here. You know, he's more than just your cookie-cutter mentor character. He really develops a fully realized person. Um, so when Miyagi's first in, uh, introduced in the film, you know, it's been so long since I'd seen it, I've forgotten so many of the little details, he is given such rich backstory, uh, like you had mentioned, with his wife and the war and all that, and uh, he's given scenes of humor, uh, like you mentioned, his drunk scene, and then there's moments when he's training Ralph Macchio, and uh, you know he's like in the the catcher's uniform, like the baseball catcher, and he's just having the kid just punch him. It's it's really comical uh, the way that it's shot, and uh, I think Marita does a really fine job. It's unfortunate, you know, that Hollywood is what it is. Um, I would say. Uh, it's unfortunate that Hollywood was what it was, but it's not really a past tense situation here. Um, progress is being made, I suppose, but it's still not really great um, for non-white actors. But uh, I think Marita, you know, really takes uh, a character that could have very easily been a two-dimensional stereotype in another actor and director's hands and really does something special with it. And um, a lot of the reason for why Miyagi has stayed with people after all these years is because of the heart and soul that he as a performer 
poured into the role. So I think this is a worthy uh, a worthy nomination, even if it does seem a little bit odd that The Karate Kid is an Oscar-nominated film. But um, I guess in the end, I kind of dig it. Yeah, it's it's fascinating. And, you know, especially coming off of a year where we had such a queen of Yo Jung Yun um, winning an Academy Award and only being the second actress of Asian descent to win, there is a horrible um, stereotype that is happening with actors of uh, Eastern Asian descent uh, winning or being nominated. You know, Miyoshi Umeki wins, doesn't really have anything else to do. Um, so far, Yoo uh, Jung has not had an announced project, and I really hope that changes. Um, you know, Pat Morita gets kind of uh, nothing really to do in the sense of not playing a Mr. Miyagi caricature type after this nomination. Hang S. Noir, or I'm sorry, Hang S. Noir, um, never has anything to do after this win. Rinko Kikuchi has barely had anything to do. The only actors of Asian descent who have really had anything to do post-nomination have been the Tilly sisters and Meg's didn't last very long. And Jennifer had a resort to not, I shouldn't say resort, but Jennifer mainly is a poker player now is really only Haley Steinfeld. So it's like, can we give these actors something to do? That'd be great. Yeah. Give them something to do. Uh, next we have, Ralph Richardson, nominated for Greystoke, colon, The Legend of Tarzan, comma, Lord of the Apes. This is his second of two nominations. Going into this, he wins with the New York Film Critics, and he is nominated with BAFTA and the National Society of Film Critics. Here he plays the sixth Earl of Greystoke, a living ancestor of Tarzan, comma, Lord of the Apes. So how do we feel about Ralph Richardson in Greystoke, colon, The Legend of Tarzan, comma, Lord of the Apes? I had never seen this movie. I knew for years that there was a Tarzan movie called Greystone. <laughs> I can't even do it like you. Greystone, colon, The Legend of Tarzan, comma, The Lord of the Apes. Like a ridiculous title. But I'm not the biggest fan of Tarzan movies. And so I never like... I kind of actively actively avoided this one, but turns out this bitch is on HBO Max. So I was like, all right, sweet, I'll just watch it. And obviously I had to do it for this. I have questions. <laughs> Number one, why the fuck is it acceptable to see a infant to kids wang just dangling along in this movie? But the moment we get to an actual adult male, we got to cover him up. Felt very awkward. Am I wrong there? No, the um, the the uh, child nudity was something that I was not prepared for going into this. This was also my first time watching it. Yeah, and by the time we get to adult John Clayton slash Tarzan comma Lord of the Apes, why is it that we don't get adult dick? Why am I subjected to watching? And feeling very creepy with it. it just I don't know child nudity like that just really doesn't sit well with me um in general like kids are innocent let them be innocent um that's just me uh but yeah I just found that choice to be awkward like I would like to see some a grown-ass Christopher Lambert dick but again that may be just me also why is Anna McDowell's all of her dialogue 
uh, dubbed by Glenn Close. I don't know if you knew that, but that's the thing in this. Um, second or third, why does this movie suck until Ralph Richardson is on screen? He's the only reason to watch this. He's so goddamn good here. And the thing about it is, is that, oh, and fourth, this movie doesn't make sense time-wise. It just doesn't make sense at all. And I'll get to that. But Ralph Richardson is barely in the beginning for maybe a few minutes, if that. I wouldn't even say a few minutes, maybe like a minute. And then disappears until more than halfway in the movie. And then dies like half hour after we get back to him. But the best part of the movie is when he is on screen because he's so goddamn good here. I was very shocked with how much I enjoyed his performance and really liked him. He is so heartbreaking with losing his family that when he, when you find out that John Clayton is still alive, that the joy that comes into his life, it, it's like it reignites re, uh, that spark. Even his death scene is so weirdly fascinating because, like, it makes me feel like that movie Big with Tom Hanks. Like, that feels like a big moment, like, going down the stairs like that. And he's so drunk and joyous. Um, but I think the choices of this movie are very, very weird. Um, the, the idea to take Tarzan out of the jungle way too early, in my opinion, just to bring up, I don't know, that was just weird to me. Um, Kid Dick totally acceptable but adult dick not acceptable also weird choice again i don't know i'm very focused on that because it just feels so weird to me to, to make that choice best thing about this movie is Walt richardson he's delightful i enjoyed him way too much in this film um also <laughs> the gorilla suits that's a choice uh but yeah if you're gonna go watch this movie watch it for richardson but once he dies turn the movie off yeah what a what a strange little film Definitely could have used some some more Highlander dick or any at all. Um, yes. Because it was like 45 minutes of like child Tarzan nudity yeah. before you even get to Christopher Lambert. And I was just like, I was like that SpongeBob meme where he's like sitting at the diner with the coffee cup with like his, his hands up on the table, just like staring for like 45 minutes. That was just me with this movie. Like, okay, we're going to move past past this, right? Like, I don't have to look at 12-year-old ass anymore soon, like, really soon. And then it gets to Christopher Lambert, and, of course, they cover him all up. But, um, yeah, the, the gorilla thing was weird. Uh, a lot of it was just weird. I did know that Glenn Close dubbed over uh, Andy McDowell. I looked that up uh, while I was watching the movie because something about the movie was just off, and I was just, like, looking up the movie, and I, I read that. But Ralph Richards, Richardson is probably the best thing about this movie. Uh, he brings so much humor and life to it. And I feel like whenever he was on screen, those are the only times that I was ever like both engaged in what I was watching and enjoying what I was watching because he's very funny. Uh, like there's that dinner scene where I think they're eating soup and Tarzan doesn't know what a spoon is. And all of like the you know the rich people are appalled, and Richardson is like, yeah, spoons are stupid, and just starts drinking the soup like Tarzan does, and it's it's just really funny, and his his sledding down the stairs moment uh, took me aback in the weirdest way, and yet I kind of 
welcomed it because it made sense for this character who is sort of a little bit off his rocker the entire time, but you wouldn't always know it unless you were sort of paying attention. He's in very little this movie. Uh, very like He's in the very beginning for just a brief few moments, and then he comes back, and then he's dead. And um, it's real sad because he really was the only light in this movie for me. And then when he's when, uh, once he's gone, I'm just like, eh, do I really need to finish the movie? And of course I did because that's you know who I am. But um, yeah, it's not a movie that I think I'll ever revisit under any circumstances. But I'm glad I got to at least experience this Ralph Richardson nomination. I'll give it that. I'm also very happy that you felt very awkward just as much as I did. Yeah, I I, was, I did not know very much about this movie other than, you know, it was, of course, a story of Tarzan. Uh, Richardson played like his grandfather or uncle or something. And that's pretty much all I knew. And I was I was not prepared for multiple children to be just fully nude on camera for a third of the film. <laughs> um, yeah. Makes no sense to me. But mm-hmm. I didn't make the film. <laughs> no. Some pervert did. I would like a Tarzan film where we just see the baby being taken and then the rest of the movie we're just we're just treated with dick swinging in the air the whole time. Okay. Like, do you remember that scene? <laughs> in what was that movie with Maggie Smith that she was nominated for in 86? Oh, oh um, Room with a View, the, the skinny dipping scene. The skinny dipping scene. So imagine the skinny dipping scene in that, but all of Tarzan. It's multiple Tarzans. Yes. Swinging together and swinging together. Oh, ow, ow. Anything else before we move on to lead? No, we probably, we should move on. <laughs> We're going to really keep this going. Um, all right. The leading actors of 1984 were... For his role as a man consumed by envy of Wolfgang Mozart and Amadeus F. Murray Abraham... Let us start with Albert Finney as Jeffrey, or as I would like to say with that fucking spelling, Joffrey Furman in Under the Volcano. This is his fourth of five nominations. Going into Oscar night, he has a Golden Globe nomination for Actor in a Drama, uh, National Society of Film Critics, and New York Film Critics Association nominations for Actor. But he wins at LA 
film critics, but ties with F. Murray Abraham, an actor. In Under the Volcano, again, Albert plays Joffrey Jeffrey, who is, it tells the story of one day an alcoholic losing his shit and trying to be taken back by his wife and goes to a brothel and gets scammed and then gets murdered. Surprise, that's the ending. So um, what are our thoughts here of Mr. Finney? I really like Albert Finney in this. This is another one I had never seen this film, and I really dug it. Like, I completely believe Albert Fenney in this role. Like, he is committed to this performance. I, it's probably, I try not to compare performances in quite this way that I'm about to, but um, I couldn't help but think this while watching the film. All the things that I kind of have a problem with, with Nicolas Cage's performance in Leaving Las Vegas, Albert Finney does correctly for me here. I know they're two very different movies, but the characters have a sort of similar sort of crux to them. If you know the stories and their their dealings with alcoholism and basically drinking themselves to their own demise. So I guess that's where that connection came from. But while Cage's as a performance doesn't really sit well with me, I think Finney really makes it work here in this context. I found him so captivating from beginning to end. And this is a character you pretty much know right away that, you know, this is a tragic figure and things are not going to end well for him. Like, I got the impression that this is going to end very sad, very bleak. And if it ends happy, it's going to be dishonest. Like, it's not going to work if they try to Hollywood this ending. And um, thankfully, they don't, because I think it's what was right for the character. And um, I think it really helps Fenny create this beautiful portrait of this dude who is just so far gone and... Um, lo- I guess you say lost his way and just let him continue, let himself continue drifting until he ultimately got what he wanted in this weird, twisted kind of way. And I really dug it. Uh, this is one that I can see myself revisiting in years to come just to see what more I get out of it as I get up there in years. So um, this is a this is a good one. I really dig this Finney performance. John Huston as a director, whew, child. Um, as a film, I don't like this movie. I genuinely, I never had seen this before. And I didn't know what it was about. Like, I went into it completely blind. But for some reason, I knew that people considered this a comedy. Some people consider this a drama. Um, I think you could really consider it a bit of both. Like, it's a dramedy for sure. This movie does not work for me. I I, found, I don't know why I expected, like, Under the Volcano to take place in, like, modern day. He's on an island. I don't know. Maybe I just stereotyped the, the idea of volcano with it. This movie is a dud to me. I think it's also so interesting that Jacqueline Bissette was really considered a supporting actress contender here. I know she got the globe, but woof. Um, So the movie doesn't work for me. I think it's really bad. Finney's performance doesn't work for me either. I, I think the 
Nick Jack Nicholson compare or Jack uh, the uh, uh, Nicholas Cage comparison is interesting, but and pretty on the nose. But I don't like really like his performance either. You know, obviously, if you're gonna shout anyone out from leaving Las Vegas, it's Elizabeth Shue. But there's something about this that doesn't work for me as a whole. Um, I think Finney is very convincing as the over-the-top drunk, but I think his dialogue here doesn't mesh well with what's... I think everyone else around him, Sans Bissette, is so much more interesting. Even Kathy, or uh, what is it, Katie Huardo, um, who has a very small role in this, is so much more interesting as Senora uh, Gregoria. I don't know. I, I I can't tell if it's the script or it's the direction. What doesn't mesh well for me here. Um, I also just think this would have been more interesting if you're going to have, I know he's a part of the British Consul, but if you're going to have this story and have Mexico be such a big part of it, I think it would have worked better with a Mexican actor and a Mexican character just to add to the whole thing i don't know there's something rubbing me wrong about this movie i don't like it it took me a while to warm up to the film itself as well um i liked finney in it pretty much right away but the film also was kind of uh not quite working for me in the beginning i kind of just let it fall into place for me over time i suppose but I can see where you're coming from with um, it not quite working. John Huston is an interesting figure as a director. His filmography is very interesting. I really like his film, The Dead. That's uh, a very different film. But then, you know, this era, you know, he has uh, Under the Volcano and Pritzi's Honor, which I know, I'm not a huge fan of Pritzi's Honor. So this is sort of uh, right there among that group. And... I don't know, maybe it's one that will grow on me over time, but uh, I definitely like Benny's performance more than I like the film. I can see where you're coming from because it's taken me a minute. If we had, if I had been fresh off of watching the movie when we recorded this, I'd probably be closer to where you are. I think it's one that is just sort of latched on, and I have a feeling it's going to, my opinion on the film will probably refine over time. Because um, it's been a while since I watched this one, and it's just sort of had a weird uh, shadow in my mind ever since. So I think that's why it's sitting in the way that it is. Yeah, and you're you're a big book guy. You definitely read more books than I do. I think I'm on my third book of the year while you're on your, like, 76, which kudos, by the way. But I would be interested if you ever read the book, how it compares to the movie. Yeah, I have not read this book, but, um, you know, I went into it knowing that it was based on, like, a well-regarded work of literature and i think you can see those sort of literary um elements in the film and so i wonder how if maybe they're not quite working in the way that they should at least upon first watch but um yeah it's a it's a fascinating movie uh with a very unusual performance i guess you could say at the forefront yeah for sure um we, I, I just want to bring this up because we're not doing this episode, but have you seen The Dresser? No, that's the only Finney performance that I have, nominated performance that I haven't seen yet. 
Okay. You and I will have a separate conversation one day when you finally watch it. Cause that, that's also a film that I'm going to ask. Uh, I would like to ask film Twitter who they see us playing. Cause I, I see us for sure on who is who. And I think you and I would definitely agree on it. But um, when you, whenever you get to watch that, let's, let's talk. Cause I'd be very interested to know your opinion on Finney there. Yeah. I want to, because I'm also a big fan of Tom Courtney. Yeah. Um, he, I think he should have won for Dr. Zhivago back in the day, but um, I'm curious if uh, he's my winner for uh, The Dresser. Well, it's it, the reason I asked, too, is because, um, well, not saying that Finney isn't larger than life with this role, because I think the role asks him to be. He is larger than life in The Dresser. Okay. And when I, like... Oh, oh my God. And but it's still funny because I, I do I tie him and Tom Courtney that year. Um, because they're both just so fucking good. I oh god, that movie's so good. And um, but yeah, I'd be really interested to see what you think. Let us get back to the man who needs his ass eight, Sam Watterson as Sidney Schonberg in the Killing Fields. This is his sole nomination thus far. Going into Oscar night, he has a BAFTA and a Golden Globe nomination for actor in a drama. In the Killing Fields, again, Sam plays Sidney Schonberg, who is a reporter um, who has taken um, a first bird's eye look into um, the Cambodian genocide going on around in mid-70s Cambodia while trying to survive at the same time. So, Brandon, we've talked about uh, we've talked about Noor. Let's talk about Watterson. I think Watterson is giving exactly the type of performance that he needs to in this film, um, especially considering who his scene partner is with Noor. Because, um, you know, Noor is giving a very dialed-in, lived-in, um, effortless type of performance. And if Watterson had given, you know, a bigger, flashier type of delivery, it wouldn't have meshed well and uh i think the movie would have suffered because of it uh waterson instead gives you know a much more down to earth very direct and internal type of performance um for this movie which i think also helps considering where the character ends up going you know he's someone who ends up living with quite a bit of remorse over time uh because you know he flees cambodia when he can um and you know you you can make an argument that he kind of had to because he very well could have died and so on the one hand you can't exactly blame him and yet on the other hand you can say that he maybe could have helped his friend more but you know that's really going into a tricky territory and you know he goes back to new york and he lives with that and it weighs on him and he wins this you know award and all these recognitions and nor or Dithprong, isn't there to um, accept these awards with him and share the stage and get all the accolades. And uh, it's kind of a weird look for him, uh, the Watterson character. And uh, I really dig the sort of internal struggle that this character goes through in the second half of the film that I think makes the ending... I have, pr- I have issues with the ending, but on like a, on a paper textual level, it helps the ending work. They're re... They're, reunification um the way the ending is directed is really the part that kind of made me roll my eyes but um because it's a little bit too sentimental and the the needle drop that hits right there is just 
laughable. But other than that, uh, I thought it worked on paper. Uh, but yeah, Watterson, I think, is giving a very selfless performance here. He's not really chewing things up in the way that another actor in a big epic film like this might try to in order to try to match the scale of the film. He's simply, you know, just doing what needs to be done and being honest with himself and the subject matter and playing off of his scene partners um, in a way that helps them form a sort of symbiotic relationship on screen. So um, I guess I, I, I dig Sam Waterston. Uh, I know he's, you know, he's regarded for you know, his law and order days and, you know, now Grace and Frankie, of course. But um, we never really talk about Sam Waterston, the, uh, the film actor, because those are sort of bygone years. But makes me wonder what he would have done if he hadn't been you know, attached to television all these all these decades. Yeah, um, I think Waterston is fantastic in this movie. Um, I think there is such a point that you brought up that, like, if he had been too over the top, like, it wouldn't have worked. You know, he's subtle where he needs to be subtle, and he's big where he needs to be big, and it works so well for this movie. Um I you know I I um I don't really have anything negative on this. I just think that in this lineup with how things worked out, if you're looking at this five, you know people say and it very well possibly could have come between the Amadeus boys, but I think Watterson might have been a very possible third here that maybe he would have even had a bigger chance had he had one more moment focused on him to really pull through. But the film doesn't allow nor need that. I hope that makes sense because of the subject matter and because of Noor, um, with Noor being in supporting, you know, obviously, like I said, with the five in lead, I um, also agree that I wish that Watterson had um, done more film work. It's so funny. My first introduction to him was as, as I think, a 10-year-old kid watching Serial Mom. And, you, you know, you and I had spoken earlier about, like, how Watterson always kind of has looked the same. And to me, Watterson has always looked the same since Serial Mom. So for me to watch this movie and be like, damn, that man is fine. I'm like, all right, cool, 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 cool. Um, but yeah, it's so interesting just to know him now and what he's done and, um, you know, things like Grace and Frankie, you know, he's really there. I, I hope this doesn't sound mean, but I always feel like Watterson acting now always feels like he forgets he's acting like something in Miss Sloan or this, or no, I'm sorry, not this, this um, Miss Sloan or Grace and Frankie. I always feel like he forgets he's on a set and when they get the take that they get, it's always like air heady. Does that come off to you at all? I think I know what you mean. It's not something that ever, I ever really thought about, but listening to you describe it, I'm kind of picturing him. And I think I know where you're coming from. He does have a very, there is a sort of uh, Sam Waterston ism to the way he has some line deliveries and his more, you know, uh, recognizable roles. Mm -hmm. And, of course, he's father to actress Catherine Waterston, who really hasn't been, I don't think, the leading lady that people thought she might have been. But, you know, we've seen her in some films like Inherent Vice. I think she's really good in, Inher in Inherent Vice and 
then of course there's that alien movie she's in, but um, that's not her fault. But yeah, um, I think Waterston does exactly what he needs to here, and it works really, really good. Um, it's also noted that he has less screen time than his uh, co-star, Noor. So I always find that interesting when a supporting has more screen time and wins compared to a lead that has less. So thank you, Screen Time Central, for that. All right, I'm gonna. We got to do this these two as one because there's no way to not do it. So we have the boys of Amadeus. We have F. Murray Abraham as Antonio Salieri in Amadeus. This is his sole nomination, and he wins um, the Oscar. He gets a BAFTA nomination for uh, lead actor. He gets a Golden Globe win for actor in a drama, and then he ties with Finney at LA Film Critics Association. Then you have Tom Hulse, who plays Amadeus in Amadeus, also his sole nomination. And going into this night, he only gets a Golden Globe nomination for acting a drama. So, in Amadeus, Hulse again plays Amadeus, and this is the story of Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart, who the, the craziness and the eclectic life is really documented. And then you have F. Murray Abraham, who plays Antonio Salieri, who is um, makes himself really Amadeus's um, rival, really without the knowing of Amadeus himself. Amadeus confides in him, Salieri manipulates him. Um, and it's the story is told through Salieri's point of view. So that's why he's in lead, as well as Tom, who plays the character the, the uh titular role. So let's talk. Amadeus boys, Brandon, thoughts. So we had just mentioned how like Waterston and Nor are the perfect pair on screen because they balance each other so well, um, their character types and their performance styles and all that. And that all really applies as well to the Amadeus gentleman, but in a completely different way. Um, you know, these characters are very different. The setting is very different. The performance styles are very different. And yet they also uh, match each other point for point in a similar sort of way. It's crazy that these two guys didn't become like the biggest stars in the world after this movie, because I think they're both fabulous, giving two uh, completely mind-blowing performances. Um, you know, Abraham here is the winner in real life, and I think he's great here. You know, it's sort of the this. I guess I, I want to say I was going to say subtle, but then it's also not that subtle when you're really looking. It's an interesting balance between um, being quiet while also being sort of overtly sneaky about things. Um, you know, he has his moments of shade and he has his side eye and he's definitely a master manipulator. And if you know what you're looking for, you see all the tells of all that. But it's not quite so ham-fisted that um, you can't believe that the other characters aren't catching on. You know, uh, it's like he's giving the audience just enough to to get into the mind of this character without uh, showing his entire hand. And I really dig that. I I love watching Abraham play this part. I like watching him pull all these strings and push people's buttons make people think things and turn them against each other and all that sort of stuff. It's just really enjoyable. 
Uh, and then, you know, you have Tom Hulse on the other side who's giving, you know, the quote unquote bigger performance. You know, there's uh, all the, the outbursts of laughter. Uh, I had the, I, I joked in my head when I watched it that Tom Hulse invented Kitty Foreman from that 70s show because that's what that, that's what that nervous laughter reminded me of. And I was like, oh, that's Deborah Jo Rubb right there. That's where she got it. Um, and I really thought that was hilarious. And, you know, he's, he's, he's subtle in his own way, but you, again, you wouldn't realize it if you're not really looking for it because he seems so big and on the nose, but there's, there's more there than meets the eye. I think there's more there to both of these parts, but in like the complete opposite sort of ways. And, uh, I don't even know where to go. It's like those, these, it's those type of performances where they're both so brilliant that you don't even know what to say because it's all been said before and it all just sounds repetitive and hyperbolic, but they're just both so captivating that you can't stop talking about them because then you just start rambling. And um, yeah, it's just, it's sort of a masterwork in acting and filmmaking. Like I think Amadeus across the board is just tens. And um, these two gentlemen are no exception to that. Amadeus is my second favorite best picture winner of all time i think it's fascinating um i watched for the first time when revisiting this for this episode the director's cut which i'd never seen before and highly recommend and there's something about this movie that just delivers such a good punch every single time um personally i would think i i would say it's milos foreman's best film um, and yeah, I agree with you that I was very surprised that F. Murray Abraham and Tom Hulse didn't become bona fide A-listing men or A-list men at this time. Um, and what would have been really interesting too is I don't know if he was out at the time, but had I think he was, had Tom Hulse won, he would have been the first openly gay actor to win. So there's that. He is a fellow homosexual, so you know, tip of the dick to you, sir. Um, so with that said, uh, F. Murray Abraham, uh, Salieri is shade incarnate. He is such a messy bitch. Um, it's genuinely delightful to see someone who is so up his own ass to make himself the victim of this story in his mind. Um, than to take such pride in the murder of Amadeus to then also love the man at the end and tell the story correctly. Um, the shade that this man pulls through with his actions more than what he says or does is so fascinating. This is a villain character that is so delicious and just delightful and, you know, I I heard someone once say that they felt that Salieri was best in old form when he's telling the story. And then other people think he's best in young form. And I don't know if I could say there's a best form because it's just so perfect all the way around. Um, and Abraham is delightful. And I know that Milos Forman and especially Meg Tilly were not fans of Abraham. So... You know, who knows if it's actually acting for him. Um, Tom Holtz, though, is sublime. He is so over the top without being 
a caricature. He is exactly who you think Amadeus is. Like, for an example, I remember when Lincoln had come out and I saw this interview with Sally Field and um, Spielberg, who said, we always knew what Lincoln looked like, but we never knew what he sounded like. But the moment that Daniel Day-Lewis opened his mouth, we all just collectively accepted that that's how Lincoln actually sounded. Tom Hulse did it first. He completely did it first. There is no way that I will ever think or not not think that that isn't how Amadeus sounded because it's so perfect for the character he's delivering. That laugh, that um, boating queerness that Tom brings from his own life into Amadeus. Um, wouldn't have been surprised if him and Salieri ended up like blowing each other at some point either in this film because I you know we've all done that with a friend of me possibly you know I know I have but I am just like this is who Amadeus is and um you know I know Hulse retired from acting in 08 and he's a producer now on Broadway he is a, he's actually he has an egot minus the o so he's an igot e g t yeah an igot so um, you know, I don't think he'll ever get his Oscar, which is unfortunate, but uh, go Tom Hulse. Something else that's really interesting to consider about the, the performance styles in this movie is um, I think it's important to remember that this story is quite literally told from Salieri's point of view. Like you had mentioned, you know, the old man Salieri, who's literally recounting this. This is his version of Mozart. Like, this isn't, you know, the factual Mozart. This is how he views and remembers Mozart. So these exaggerations about, like, his his laugh, that's probably depicted as more annoying than it may have been, or his flamboyance as larger than it may have been, is sort of channeled through this lens of Salieri's resentment and jealousy an envy of Mozart. And I think Tom Hulse plays into that really well because he doesn't quite exaggerate it to the point that it is um, unbelievable or camp or anything like that. It's just big enough to where you believe this is the most arrogant, self-centered son of a bitch that ever lived. But but it's real. But it's really not quite because it's it's sort of skewed through Salieri's feelings toward this person. And likewise, uh, Abraham is playing himself the way he views himself. So um, maybe he thinks of himself as more dastardly and smarter than he actually is. Maybe uh, his own self-esteem is playing into how Salieri handles himself in different scenarios. So I think that's a really subtle um, side of Milos Forman's direction um, that really brings out these different uh, layers of the performances in a way that does not immediately draw attention to itself. But once you sort of go into the movie with that mindset, you can see how the actors made some of the decisions that they made in the way they decided to depict these characters, given the point of view of the story. Um, 
so yeah, there's just a whole lot going on with this movie. This is a, I mean, it's a spectacular film through and through, but it's much more complex than um, your standard viewer might realize upon, you know, first viewing. All right, let's get to Jeff Bridges in Starman as, well, Starman. Um, going into Oscar night, he only has a Golden Globe nomination for um, actor in a drama regarding what numbered nomination this is. This is his third of, I believe, seven. Um, and this is, side note, John Carpenter's only Oscar-nominated performance he's ever directed. And, side note, people like to say Sigourney Weaver was the first for sci-fi. Jeff Bridges was. Everyone always forgets that. So, in Starman, again, Jeff plays Starman, who is an alien who comes back to town comes back to town, comes to town from uh, space and has to deliver messages and um, um, figure out why this transmission that he received and he takes the form of a dead husband played by Karen Allen and there's some shenanigans involved. And what are your thoughts on Jeff Bridges here? Um, so Listeners of this show know I've not always been the kindest person when it comes to Jeff Bridges' nominations. I like Jeff Bridges as a performer, but his nominations seem to just don't quite do it for me. And um, Starman, I'm sort of a mixed bag. Uh, when it first began, the film, I was not crazy about it. Uh, once again, this was a first-time watch for me, so I was going to this relatively fresh I basically just knew he played like an alien who came to Earth. I didn't really know the plot. I kind of went into it knowing just those bare bones. And when it first starts and, you know, he's learning this human stuff, I kind of rolled my eyes and I was like, oh, no, is this going to be a movie where some guy is just learning what it means to be human for two hours? And I just was not in the mood for it. And as it's going through and he's learning how to talk and uh, learning about mannerisms and gestures, I was like, oh no, is this Jeff Bridges' Nell? I really don't want to watch Jeff Bridges' Nell. Ugh. And then about halfway through, I started warming up to it. It went in a bit of a different direction than I thought it was going to be. Uh, I'm still not over the moon with it, but um, there's a little more to it than I was initially willing to give it. I think he does some interesting stuff with this sort of fish out of water type character. It's not quite as cookie cutter, uh, stepping stone type of performance as I thought it would be. But then again, I also wasn't really blown away by it. The movie never really clicked, but I've, I'm fine with it, I guess. Jeff Bridges's nominations, his best will always be the contender, period, in my opinion. Uh, this movie is not good. Um, this movie, I, I felt like it wanted to be what E.T. was, but for adults. Not saying E.T. is not for adults, but you know what I mean by that. Um, if you're going to nominate someone here, I guess Karen Allen, but that's even a stretch, really. This doesn't require a whole lot of from Bridges. He talks like this and says things like greetings and kidnapping. Why are we nominating that? 
I, I don't. This no, no. Why do we keep nominating Jeff Bridges? Yeah, I was not really super taken with this one. There were a couple moments where I chuckled a little bit, like where he would learn a word and he would repeat it in the sort of um, way that one of like the the Southern hick type guys would do. And you'd sort of mock their accent and things like that, uh, sort of subtly. And I, I did laugh a little bit, a couple of those little moments. But for some reason, this one just never really latched on to me. I was kind of just lukewarm on it. Um, like, I, like I warmed up to it eventually, but I only reached like a lukewarm level <laughs> of warmed up to. And I was kind of surprised when I finished this movie feeling not great about it and went on you know letterboxd and saw that all of my like not all but a lot of my mutuals had rated this pretty highly and i was like wow people like this a lot more than i do what was i missing and i truly don't know what i was missing but um yeah for some reason this one's just not for me i'm sorry jeff bridges i like jeff bridges generally but you never know it by listening to me talk about his nominations with the academy I mean, I liked, I recall liking Thunderbolt and Lightfoot as a performance, not a supporting performance, but it's a, I liked it. I think he's fun in True Grit, but I don't know. Yeah, I forgot about Thunder, Thunderbolt and Lightfoot. Yeah, had he been in the lead, I would have been more warmed. Yeah. I think we both liked him quite a bit in that one. We were just, we just had issues with his category placement. Yeah. I don't know. This just feels like a waste of space nomination. Yeah. I mean, this is where Nor could have gone, to be honest. Yeah. Agreed. Well. Sorry shall... to this man. <laughs> shall we? Shall we? Okay. Your uh, nominees for supporting actor, as a reminder, were Hang S. Noor for The Killing Fields, Adolf Caesar for A Soldier's Story, John Malkovich for Places in the Hearts, Pat Morita for The Karate Kid, and Ralph Richardson for Greystoke, colon, The Legend of Tarzan, comma, Lord of the Apes. And my number five is just going to Nor, uh, simply because this is a category fraud issue. He is, once you finish the film, it's pretty clear that he is a lead here and should not be in this lineup. Yeah, agreed. Um, Nor is number five. Uh, he's, you know, he's good, uh, but, you know, he is the lead. Had he actually been supporting, I don't think I would have him win either because I definitely feel like his story is what won him this. So um, either way, he would not be my winner. And uh, yeah, he's definitely five because of category placement. My number four is going to be Ralph Richardson. Um, I like Richardson in this. He's by far the best thing about this film. Um, but I guess I just like the other three a little bit more. It's it's a good performance, and there's no real reason to watch this film at all. <laughs> but if there is a sliver of a reason, it's Richardson. But I'm uh, you could really you could probably just YouTube him, I suppose. I don't know that his performance really elevates the film. It just makes it uh, somewhat worth watching. So number four for Richardson. Number four for me goes to John Malkovich. Um, as much as I really do actually like him, I think my four through one is just like 
I like them all, but I have to place them somewhere. And the thing is, is that Malkovich, out of who's left, um, while is quite good in Places on the Heart, and again, him and Lindsay Cross were really the only reasons to watch that movie, um, I wouldn't give him the win here as a whole. And I, like I said, I do give him the win down the line, but this is not one of those. So Malkovich at four. Malkovich is my number three, um, which I think means I've put all the Places in the Heart people at number three in their lineups, which is kind of interesting. I enjoy Malkovich in this, I guess. He makes the he makes the most of it, and I don't really care for the film, but sort of like Richardson, he makes the movie interesting with his presence and the decisions that he's making, um, but I'm still not thrilled with it, so he's just number three. Well, my number three is Pat Morita in The Karate Kid. Um, I think, like I said, this is iconic it really is giving me every emotion of the spectrum needed for this role. His um, drunk scene, especially, is what sells it. And as a whole, it's just really good. Plus, the pop culture zeitgeist of the moment of him, of Mr. Miyagi, of Wax on Wax Off, is iconic for a reason. Um, but I think three is pretty fair for him. While it doesn't elevate to a win for me, I still can't praise his performance enough. My runner-up is Pat Morita for The Karate Kid. He's... Um noteworthy, uh, iconic, legendary for a reason. He took, you know, a role that could have been just, you know, a, a mentor in a 1980s kids movie and made it something really memorable. And people, you know, still quote wax on, wax off to this day, whether they've seen the movie or not. Like I said, I knew that line and I knew what it was from uh, and who spoke it. I knew the name Mr. Miyagi for years before I'd even seen the film. And I don't think that's really changed for a lot of people. And I think he um, he really elevates the performance, or he elevates the film with his performance and everything he put into it. But um, Adolf Caesar is going to be my winner. This is a tremendous, uh, spectacular role. He lights up every scene that he's in. Um, there is so much complexity to this character. There is so much going on in the backstory of this person that comes to light every time he's on screen. Uh, he gives you everything, and he gives his his cast everything they need to respond in the way that they do to make you believe that this is a person who uh, is someone people want to see murdered. It's it's great, and I, I really wish we had gotten more of uh, Mr. Caesar. Unfortunately, as you had mentioned earlier, he departed. Uh, this planet soon after, and that's unfortunate because I, I really think he's great in Soldier Story, so that's why he's my winner. Well, I have Caesar and Richardson left, and my runner-up is Rolf Richardson, which means you are correct, and we agree Adolf Caesar should have won this. Richardson is the best part of that movie, I guess you could call it. Um, and I and I can't believe how much and how high I put him up because I truly thought he was the best thing about that movie and he lights up the screen when he's there. But once he dies, there's no reason to watch the movie. Just shut it off. Um, and I think he would have been a really worthy winner here had Caesar not been here. Adolf Caesar surprised the hell out of me. Um, I think he's just fantastic. I the what he's bringing to the table works in every scene possible. There is never not a bad moment with him. And he is just so goddamn good. So, yeah, we agree. Adolf Caesar should be, should have been the supporting actor winner here. So, 
lead actors. As a recap, Sam Waterston, The Killing Fields, F. Murray Abraham, Tom Hulse, Amadeus, Jeff Bridges, Starman, Albert Finney, Under the Volcano. With that, number five, Jeff Bridges. No, just no. Yeah, I I don't want it to seem like I just hate Jeff Bridges, but he is also my number five once again. I think this is not the this is certainly not the first time he's my number five on this show. Um it's just this type of I don't know what it is. This type of story just does not work for me. I just don't find it very interesting. I love that other people do that they get something out of out of this. Uh but yeah. It's just not for me, and Bridges doesn't make it any more interesting for me. So, you know, number five for Starman. Yep, agreed there. Um, Number four, for the very first time in his Oscar career, I'm not giving Albert Finney a win. This is where he goes. Um, This does not work for me. Finney, I really thought going in under the volcano, like, he could do it. Like, he could become my perfect Oscar nomination ballot winner. And he falls short here. Um, it works, I guess, but he's at least he's doing something compared to Bridges. So I guess four is fair for him. Um, this might surprise you, but Sam Waterston's my number four. I really do like Waterston here, and he's giving a performance that I, I, I guess what you might say doesn't normally get nominated for an Oscar in this category in this type of film that's so big, because he does give a more uh, dialed in sort of subtle performance that I think really works and is exactly what this film needs. But um, there's just something about the remaining three that I have that just sort of carry me along a little bit more. Um, So I guess Sam Waterston's only number four in this particular lineup. He may have been higher in another lineup. He just happens to have been nominated along these other gents. My number three is Sam Waterston. Um, I think what he's doing is fantastic. Again, like, as you said, for what he's doing, but I, he definitely needed something else to do to maybe, maybe squeak him in above one of the Amadeus boys. But again, he doesn't need that because nor is there doing that for him. Um, but yeah, let's just be honest. This was always between the Amadeus boys, so Waterston's at three. Albert Finney is number three for me. Um, this is a performance and a film that has sort of increased in value in my mind over time since I watched it. And I think it might go up a little bit further upon rewatch in the future. As, a, as we were talking about John Houston uh, a few minutes ago and now... I find it very interesting that in this era of John Huston's filmmaking, he seemed, it's almost like he was determined to give you something that you weren't expecting or that you weren't ready for. And I wonder how much that plays into what he was doing, if that makes sense. I'm sort of coming up, coming up with this thought on the fly, which is why it's sort of half-formed right now. But it makes me kind of want to rewatch, you know, Under the Volcano and Pritzi's Honor and The Dead and, you know, his other films from the 80s with this sort of idea in mind that he was just sort of going outside the box and he was in this last last stage of his career and he was like, fuck it, I'm going to do what I want. I'm going to do something interesting and daring. And I think that's kind of maybe where he was coming from with Under the Volcano with how 
odd it is because I think we both sort of went into it not quite getting what we were expecting. And uh, I wonder how it plays um, on rewatch. But uh, for what it is, uh, I do find Albert Fenney's work interesting and somewhat thrilling. But uh, of course, with the Amadeus boys here, as cliche as it is, um, it's hard to get much higher than number three when you're in a lineup with Abraham and Pulse. So Albert Fenney at number three. So had we done this 10, 12 years ago when I first saw Amadeus, the winner and the runner-up would have been reversed. After this last rewatch, though, I'm very convinced that this person should have won over the other. And I feel like if you're ever going to give a tie to two perfect performances, it should be this year. But for me, I can make a clear winner. And the reason I want to give this speech before I say who my winner is um, the reason I think I was able to switch more to this person is because I'm watching it with an older lens and a wiser lens, and I can see what this person is doing to really bring this character to the front. And it works so much better, in my opinion, by and by so much better, it's even like a percentage on the other person. So with that said, my runner up is F. Murray Abraham, and Tom Hulse is my winner. Um, F. Murray Abraham, again, was my winner the first time, and the second time I had seen this movie when I was way younger, and was, I almost, I almost had decided on not even doing a rewatch, because I knew there was no way that my mind could be changed. Uh, You know, his Salieri is so goddamn good. I am so glad that I did the rewatch, though, because... Pulse, I was able to appreciate so much more what he's doing here as Amadeus and really the comparison of Daniel Day Lewis with Lincoln is what came to mind when I watched it this time because it is he did what he did at first and there's no way in hell that I can ever not hear Amadeus in Hulse's voice. And we'll never know what he actually sounded like. Maybe he sounded, maybe he sounded like Jeff Bridges in Starman, for all we know. But um, Tom Hulse is Amadeus, was Amadeus, will forever be Amadeus, and should have won this Oscar. So, very interested to know where you go. Yeah, you know, for some reason when you were giving your speech, I thought you were going with Abraham, because I I would have thought that in your younger days you would have gone with Hulse, and now that you're older, you would go with Abraham. It's kind of interesting, because I wonder. I think. I don't know who my winner was when I first watched this movie. I guess back then I wasn't really thinking about the Oscars. I was just watching movies. I feel like back then it might have been more Hulse. I don't know. But um, right now, I'm giving Hulse the runner-up. I think he's fantastic, and I see why people say he is the better one of the two. There really is no right answer um, when it comes to this, or frankly, any lineup to be honest but especially when it comes to this these two are both so at the top of their game and so perfect in their own unique ways that i can completely understand why someone says hulse is the number one because he is just impeccable in this role but there's something about the abraham 
uh, performance that really draws me in a little bit more. I guess I kind of resonate with this sort of bitter, bitchy jealousy and all the things that are driving uh, Salieri to do the things that he's doing. And this complexity to this character, the way he hates Mozart so much and yet reveres him at the same time. And he's in awe of him, but he also can't stand him. And somehow he's able to do that all at the same time and it works and it's completely believable. Um, I think Abraham is putting in so much craft into this character. Um, like he does the old man Salieri part in a way that doesn't feel hokey to me. Like sometimes people will perform like the older version of a character and it's like they go into old man drag and I don't get that vibe when he's older Salieri, you know? This is just, this is one of the best wins in this category, in my opinion, like period. And I see why there are people who say it's their number one of all time in this category. Um, I haven't seen all of them, so I can't say for certain, of course, but um, he'd be up there for me if you're ranking the, the actual winners, because um, uh, he's, Fantastic. So, yeah, F. Murray Abraham is my winner in this lineup. You know, if there was ever a time in the history of this show that I really thought you would give a tie, it would have been this one, too. It'd be totally uh, warranted. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's like it, if there was ever a time to give a, a, a tie in this lineup, like in this category, mm-hmm. uh, Amadeus is the year to do it. Absolutely. And that's the thing. They're both so good. Like, I there was a moment in re-watching this because my, my decision and my mind was still on Abraham up until the moment where Abraham visits Hulse dressed up in that, like, ghost garb. Mm-hmm. and the reaction that Hulse gives fully sealed the deal for me because, you know, the way he portrays Amadeus is like this free spirit who really doesn't give a shit, but really he's able to pull back and be like, no, I actually care and have these feelings and want to do my best. And it really just sealed it for me at that point. I could, I literally paused the movie and I said, wow, I can't believe I've actually changed my mind on this. It's fascinating. It's so fascinating. Yeah, there was a, a similar type moment for me with Abraham. Like I went into this movie pretty sure that Abraham was going to be my winner. But, you know, I go into them as open-minded as I can. My mind has changed, you know, in past episodes, as listeners have heard. But there was a moment that was also sort of a, a seal-the-deal type uh, moment for me with Abraham where, um, I can't recall her name, Mozart's wife brings, uh, she brings the originals to his house, um, and Salieri takes them, and he's he's reading the music and he's hearing it, and he's living it. Abraham has this aura about him. He goes to, like, another realm. And for another, like, weird comparison, it reminded me of 
listening to Virginia Madsen describe wine in Sideways, mm. like that that monologue, but Salieri's version, but silent, minus mm. music. Silent meaning no lines. But just Abraham just living in the music of Mozart and being completely enraptured by the brilliance and the genius of this person who he wants to destroy, but also is completely in, infatuated with. Um, this is just brilliant filmmaking, just all the way through. Like, there is no hyperbole when it comes to praising Amadeus, I feel. Agreed. Agreed. And even at, I, I don't know if this, I don't, I'm going to say it because it's not just how I feel. Even with how perfect this movie is, it's one of the few perfect movies I would totally accept a remake of. Hmm. I'd be yeah. interested in what a remake would be. I'm not completely opposed to the idea of remakes, period. I'm not one of those kinds of people. But if, you know, if the right people were behind it and they had a reason for it, for why it needed to be remade now, you know, uh, if there was an artistic statement, whatever, being made, I'd be open to it. But, you know, just to remake it just for the sake of remaking it. I don't know about that. But, yeah. So, like, the um the the people who own the rights is the Salzans Company. And I, I don't know if I've ever told the story on this show, but I had done an interview with them a couple of years ago, I think, like, 2015, just to get an idea of what it would take to remake something like One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. And they said the only, which also makes me wonder how the hell Ryan Murphy got the rights for this, because this is not what they told me, because of Nurse Ratched. Not that that's a remake, but you need that company's permission to use that character, is the only way they would ever remake One Flew of the Cuckoo's Nest is to do it in the um, perspective of the Native American uh, character, who in the book, that's who the story is told from. That's the only way they would ever do the remake. So I wonder if they would ever do a remake, but in the telling of Amadeus' side. Okay. Instead of Salieri. You don't, you'd have to, like, completely rewrite it. I think you would have to, but I think you could do it. You like, could do it. Well, what I mean is, like, when I was talking about earlier how what makes these performances so interesting is it's told through Salieri's perspective. So everything that we're shown of who Mozart, quote-unquote, was is sort of um, fogged by Salieri's feelings about this person. So mm -hmm. if you did it, through Mozart's point of view, it'd be interesting to see how the character of Mozart is depicted first, you know, being his story told about him, and then how Salieri could be depicted. Would he be even more shadowy, or would it be even more inconspicuous? Well, that's you know? the thing to remember, because in this version, Mozart isn't picking up on what Salieri's supposed to be actually doing, which is... Um, you know, playing him, he's gaslighting him. Right. So you could have Amadeus's point of view to where Salieri is actually his confidant, but then you also see what Salieri's doing behind the scenes. Because even though the the first film here is told, well, I should say the only film, even though this film here is told through Salieri's point of view, there are moments that even though he's telling a story that Salieri wouldn't know about like Costanza and and Mozart. So it's very doable. I just think it would, I think that's the only way to do it is that you would have to reverse the POV. Mm -hmm. 
So that would be interesting. Sal Zan's company, you wanna you wanna sell me the rights? Wanna, wanna yeah. let me? I'll write it. I'll write it. Um, but yeah, I think I think that would be a very interesting remake. Yeah. So and I also again want to know how Ryan Murphy got the rights to Nurse Ratchet, considering that's not what they said they would do. But who knows? The almighty dollar talks and everyone else walks. Yes, and Ryan Murphy is the devil. Stay away from this, Ryan Murphy. Don't you ever fucking dare. So, as a recap, Adolf Caesar and Tom Holtz are my winners. And I have Adolf Caesar and F. Murray Abraham. Yes. And we that's it. We are halfway through. We've got three more episodes. With that, the announcement of what we have coming next is... We're going back to the women, and we're finishing out strong with the women. As we started strong, we're going to finish out strong. We're going to the class of 1954, featuring our very last guest ever on Academy Queens, and that is our good friend, Christoph. All the way from Deutschland. Deutschland. Yes. Christoph has yet to experience doing an episode with Brandon as Christoph joined myself and um, Fritz when Brandon was moving on one of our Patreon episodes. And then we've had Fritz on the regular episode. I think it was 2001. Yes, 2001. So we had to bring in Christoph to fulfill our Deutsch circle. Yes. So we will have not Fritz on the 1954 episode. Not Fritz heard. Still, one of the funniest things that he ever did was changing his Twitter name to some friends call me not Fritz. I was like, oh, that's funny. So, all right, all right. Well, people of the podcast land who have listened, thank you so much for uh, helping us reach the halfway point. Um, Merry Christmas. Happy New Year. Uh, Merry Chrysler. All that stuff you want to say from that vine that no one will let die 10 years ago. And uh, until next time, I am Joey Gentili. And I'm Brandon Stanwick. And on the count of three, we're going to give a big Academy Queens goodbye. One, two, three. Goodbye. Bye.